Well, it seems that no matter where Jesus was, he was either healing or teaching. Matthew records this even before we get to the first verse of chapter 5 in the last verses of Matthew chapter 4. And he said, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness, physical ailments, weaknesses, and illnesses among the people. And then his fame went throughout all of Syria, and they brought to him people who were miserably sick, people who were afflicted and in torments, that's the word for the torture rack, people tortured with great illnesses due to various adversities. And those who were demon-possessed as well. It was thought that the inability to speak and blindness and insanity were all attributed to demonic possession. They bought epileptics. The word literally is moonstruck. Lunatics and insane persons. And paralytics, those who couldn't walk and who were palsied. And he healed them. He therapied them. And his curing of diseases and ailments are certainly considered by mirac- to be miracles by us. But for Jesus, his curing diseases were more significant than simply healing people. Because for Jesus, they were objective signs of the prophesied healing that was to take place during the Messianic age. And this is the last verse in chapter 4. Matthew wrote, Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. And then we begin in chapter 5 of verse 1, at the beginning of the Sermon Sermon on the Mount, and it says, And seeing the multitudes that had been following him around on account of his healing, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, etc. And then we have the great teachings that Jesus shared about what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom and the promises of the difficulties of walking the narrow path with him. The persecution, the tribulation, the harassment, followed by the promise of eternal blessedness in the presence of God. And then the last sentence in the Sermon on the Mount is, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And so the difference between the teaching of Christ and the teaching of the scribes is that Jesus spoke from his own mind and his own spirit and his own heart about his own experience with God. And he spoke from the authority that was given to him by God. In fact, John wrote that in John chapter 12. Jesus said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, 
Just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Jesus taught and he spoke what he received from God. He was committed to deliver everything that God gave him to say. And what he delivered had no other end than the salvation and the eternal blessedness of men who believe in him. This is why it was said, never a man spoke like this man, because the substance of what he taught was filled with truth. His revelations of the character of the Father, the reality of the Father's existence, the importance of recognizing how to worship God truthfully and in spirit. Jesus shared his understanding that the spiritual nature of true religion and morality is all founded in the truth of who the Father is. Jesus' insight into human nature and the truth about sin all impressed his hearers that he spoke with a unique knowledge and authority. So this wasn't just a, wow, that's a good sermon, Jesus, kind of response. They were utterly amazed. They were astonished at his teaching. He was opening to them worlds of spiritual reality, reality and spiritual truth. And they were astounded to such a degree as to nearly lose their mental composure. Scott said that last week. Their minds were blown at his teaching. The word amazed literally means to strike someone out of their self-possession. To strike with panic or shock or astonishment. And you can imagine arising from these crowds listening to Jesus. A stupor of fear mixed with confusion, maybe turning into delighted wonder about his person. And then individuals trying to grasp what they were hearing and witnessing. There was a clear power in his speech that led to astonishment and deep admiration and a deep faith in his person. There was a mysterious element to Jesus as well. Think about this. He just walks up to fishermen at random and tells them to drop their fishing nets and follow him, and they immediately do. There was an instant recognition of his goodness and his pure and gentle character that instantly commanded their allegiance and their reverence. And his disciples obeyed him unquestionably even when they struggled to grasp what he was teaching them in the parables. And they began to minister with him, even though they were utterly unqualified. The idea of Jesus having authority over diseases is incredible. And to teach as one having authority means that people recognized in his manner and in his words his right and his power to rule and command in a way that was unheard of previously. Jesus spoke with humility and confidence about the person of God, as if there was nothing unfamiliar to him about the Father. And the crowds were witnessing repeatedly that there was no case of disease or infirmity that was beyond his power to correct instantly. 
He even spoke with authority to unclean spirits who recognized him immediately for who he really was. And they begged him not to torment them. And they didn't have any choice but to obey when he cast them out. His power and authority rebukes fever and heals the most dreadful of diseases. And as we learn in the Gospels, there were some people who recognized him for who he is, like we'll see this morning, and came to him submitting to his authority willfully and cheerfully. Pharisees and scribes, however, those who should have known better, only had their hostility aroused toward him. And so the people following him came down from that Sermon on the Mount with a new and awakened interest in Jesus' power and authority to teach and to heal. And they recognized and were clearly able to distinguish and differentiate between the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the religious leaders of the day. They must have recognized a spiritual emptiness in the scribes and Pharisees after they were awakened to the convicting, overpowering, and quickening influences of God's Spirit through the teaching and the miracles of His Son. Well, the text of Matthew 8 begins like this. This is where we are this morning, Matthew 8, 1 to 17. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Matthew records that the very first person to approach Jesus and his disciples is a leper. And apparently there were different kinds of leprosy in Israel at that time. Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 actually describe in detail that there was a law of leprosy how to legally deal with leprosy. And so much of the regulations in the book of Leviticus speaks of the priests and the ritual of sacrifice and the treatment of leprosy and the ceremonies of purification. It's really very detailed. And it speaks to how to deal with people who have been touched by leprosy and their clothing and their dwellings that have been affected by the presence of leprosy. And so I want to take a minute to consider what it is to be a leper because I don't think we really have any real experiential knowledge of that. Awesome. (laughs) The leper is the most unfortunate of people, the most repulsive and ill-respected person imaginable. Leprosy was simply a loathsome and filthy disease. It was a long-term disease caused by a bacteria, and the infection led to damage of the nerves and the respiratory system and the skin and the eyes. 
And as it affected the nerves, it decreased the ability to feel pain in the fingers and toes. And that's why there was so much damage to the fingers and toes, because people couldn't feel when they were injuring themselves. Leprosy was mostly prevalent through people who were poverty-stricken. And we know now that it's not highly contagious, but in the time of Jesus, it was thought to be very contagious. You'll notice that one isn't healed of leprosy, one is cleansed of leprosy. This leper was seeking cleansing by being cured of leprosy. And the biggest issue for the leper was that he immediately became a ceremonial and a social outsider. He was an outcast. He was morally stigmatized as the most sinful of human beings, and he was ritually unclean. He was not allowed to enter into, into, into any dwellings or into the temple. He had to warn everyone of his approach by yelling out, unclean, unclean. And the Jews believed that leprosy was peculiar to Palestine and that the chosen people were those who were affected and it was not found in the houses of foreigners. So as Matthew tells us, a leper approaches Jesus seeking cleansing and immediately we're struck with the deep level of his humility. Great crowds are following Jesus and they're witnessing this whole event of his cleansing of the leper. And the text says, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Behold is one of those exclamations used when something unexpected happens that you need to pay attention to. In this case, it's kind of like, everybody, check it out. A leper is walking up to Jesus to be cleansed, and he doesn't announce his presence with those two words he despises. He doesn't say, unclean, unclean. Luke said he was full of leprosy. He was in the most advanced stage of leprosy. Everyone knew by taking one look at him that he was as good as dead. He was covered entirely with leprosores. This is how Richard Trench in his book, Notes on the Miracles and Parables of Our Lord, describes the condition of leprosy. He says, leprosy was nothing short of a living death, a corrupting of all character and temperament, a poisoning of the very springs of life, a disintegration little by little of the whole body so that one limb after another actually decayed and fell away. He was himself a dreadful walking parable of death. He bore the emblems of death. His garments were torn. His hair had turned white. He, his pale skin was white. And he was always crying out because he was close to death. The Jews called the person with leprosy as afflicted by the finger of God. And when they had leprosy, they, were, they had received the stroke of God. They said that a man's true repentance was the only condition his leprosy Leprosy left him to because the Jews believed that leprosy was the outward and visible sign of an innermost spiritual condition. But folks, think with me. 
Think of the extreme suffering of this leper, the terribleness of the infliction of this disease, the horror and the anxiety that must have gripped his mind when the first tiny scabs begin to appear on his skin, and the obsession that must have tormented him with a desire to scratch and itch at it, leading to a compulsion to rip the scabs off to avoid being identified with this horrible disease. Once you had it, you were done. But think of the way he approached Jesus. He kneels before him in full humility and addresses him as Lord, as Master. And he reveals his true attitude and understanding toward the person of Jesus. He fully believes in the power of Jesus to cleanse his leprosy with a single word. You can cleanse me if you are willing. He places his own pathetic case into Jesus' hands, just like a true trusting child does in the hands of his father, which demonstrates that this leprous faith is of the highest order. This leper's approach harkens back to the first line of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. The word for poor is the Greek word tokos. Blessed are those who are beggars in spirit, Jesus was saying. This tokos describes the beggar. He lives on other people's alms. This is a person living in a state of deep destitution because he owns nothing at all. This is a person who cowers down and hides oneself for fear. One who slinks and crouches with the idea of roving about in wretchedness. Think about the starving dog living at the dump, scrounging around for scraps. That's the picture. How fitting that this would be the first person to come to Jesus. A complete and utter outcast seeking healing that Jesus can't wait to touch and heal. The picture we get here of the first two healing encounters Jesus had is that these two individuals really get who Jesus is. They recognize Jesus' divine character and they both willfully submit to that reality. Folks, faith can't go any farther than that. Both of these individuals, the leper and the centurion, have the fullest assurance and commitment that a believer can have in who Jesus is. And the text says, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus reaches out and touches him, although He didn't need to touch him to heal him of his leprosy. Ignoring the Jewish law to touch not the unclean thing. And of course, Jesus couldn't be contaminated and would never be undefiled because people witnessed that in Jesus, health overcame sickness. Purity overcame defilement. Life overcame death. And Jesus said to the leper, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. 
There's a lot of commentary about why Jesus said this. But I think he's motivated by the desire to not have his ministry impeded by more multitudes coming to him for healing than he could bear. Mark suggests this in his gospel. He says, And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them, to the priests. And then Mark says, However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter and then he says, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city. That's what he was concerned about. But was outside in deserted places. But they still came to him from every direction. What an amazing story that is. The second person that he has an encounter with is similar, but there's a little bit of a different twist in that story. It says, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion was a commander of, you know, the word century, a hundred or so people in a Roman army. Centurion was the highest rank you could have of a non-commissioned soldier in the Roman army. And in addressing Jesus as Lord, the centurion recognizes the authority of Jesus. Whether or not this person that he's concerned about is a child or a servant is rather ambiguous. The word is ambiguous in Greek. But we know that he was terribly tormented, vexed with grievous pains. And at once Jesus said he would come and heal him. That's what all the English translations say. But literally, I think he might have been saying, I having come will heal him? Several commentators suggest that Jesus is asking a deliberative rhetorical question here rather than stating a fact. In other words, am I to come and heal him? as if to engage the centurion to see just how much faith this guy really has. After all, he's a Gentile. As if Jesus is saying, you know what an awkward situation that would create for both of us, right? I mean, I'm a Jew and you want me to go into a heathen house? You're asking me to come to your house to heal this person and you don't have any issue with that? Do you want a Jew coming to your house where I would be offending every precept of my religion? And yet, how can the centurion refuse to open his house to this healer knowing the desperate situation his servant or his child is in? Note here as well, it wasn't necessary that the centurion's son believe, just like it wasn't necessary for the paralytic that his friends brought and lowered down through the roof to believe. It was their faith, the faith of their friends, that made the paralytic whole, Jesus said. And I can't help but wonder if Jesus is just thinking, has, has the centurion considered the consequences that could result from his request? Verse 
And then, amazingly, the centurion protests. He's not worthy that Jesus could come into his house. He says, I'm not adequate enough. I'm not sufficient, unsuitable for you to come into my roof. This is just like John the Baptist said, because Jesus was mightier than him, he wasn't worthy to carry his sandals. What you know made me pause. Are you like me? Because I'm pretty sure that I'd be happy to have Jesus come into my house. What might I be missing about my own worthiness by thinking that way? The humility of the centurion is noteworthy, right? He's not approaching Jesus like he's one of his buddies. And even though the centurion has authority over lots of people, he certainly isn't acting like he's got any authority over Jesus. And he's in a conundrum. I want you to heal him, but I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And then he goes into this long, curious explanation in response to Jesus' command or his comment. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion here recognizes that Jesus' authority was far greater than the centurion's authority. The centurion commanded men to do things that were physically possible and had the authority to make them do it with threats of punishment, perhaps, or threats of discipline. But the centurion recognized that Jesus had the authority to command things to happen that were physically impossible. Jesus could command things beyond human capacity. Healing diseases, casting out demons, raising the dead and the like. When Jesus commanded that diseases and demons leave a person, they didn't have a choice whether to remain or to leave. His word alone was powerful in and of itself. This is simply one of the basic attributes of deity. God commands light to shine in the darkness. God commands the blind to see and the lame to walk and the deaf to hear, and that's what happens. And as Matthew unfolds the gospel to us in the coming weeks, it'll be clearer and clearer that the person who came down from the mountain that they were so enamored of and were following so anxiously was indeed the son of the living God. And then when Jesus heard the centurion's response, he marveled and said to those who followed him, he turned around to the following crowds, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And I thought to myself, say what? All of Israel 
In other words, he's saying, I haven't seen this response of faith in the extent of my power and my authority anywhere in Israel. Here's a Gentile that gets my character and my mission and recognizes the true extent of my power and authority and where it comes from. So then I thought to myself, hmm, what a statement that is. So his faith, the centurion's faith, is greater than the faith of John the Baptist? And you know what? In terms of understanding Jesus' power and authority, yes, the centurion's belief was stronger. You remember the story in Matthew 11, and when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or should we look for somebody else? Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What more evidence can there be of who I am? Then I thought, well, greater faith than Mary and Joseph? Yeah. Greater faith in the extent of the power and authority of Jesus than Mary and Joseph. You remember in Luke chapter 2, now so it was that after three days, when Jesus was about 12 years old, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And so when his parents saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? And he said, they said, look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And they said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But his parents did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. They didn't understand the power and the authority of Jesus yet. I think Jesus is saying this centurion gets fully my authority and the power invested in me better than any I have seen in all of Israel. And then he decides to make a point about the centurion's faith. He turns to those who are following him, it says, and this is what he says. In fact, many of the heathen who have this kind of faith are going to be saved. And many Jews who don't have this kind of faith are going to be thrown into outer darkness. And you can imagine people going, what? How can that be? There must have been a few that were going, wait a minute, Gentiles? And Jesus said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Many of those who were promised the kingdom of heaven, in this case, the Israelites, the natural heirs of the kingdom, the sons of the kingdom, will forfeit their inheritance because they lack a faith that this centurion has, a complete trust in the power and authority of Jesus. 
You remember John started his gospel by telling us that Jesus came to his own, but his own received him not. But to as many as received him, he gave the right to be called the sons of God. And Jesus is simply saying many Jews will be cast out from that feast because they lack this depth of faith. But Gentiles from all over the world will enter the kingdom and sit down with the patriarchs. Wow. (laughs) Because, you know what? It's all about faith. Jesus foresaw this dark side of Israel's unbelief, which he had witnessed often and already announced that because some would not come to him with this kind of faith, there would be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Pictures of the great anguish of judgment. The awfulness and the terror of the outer darkness produce this kind of weeping and this kind of gnashing of teeth. This is the kind of weeping and gnashing of teeth that cannot be known anywhere else. This is a most terrible warning to those following him against their unbelief. It's as if Jesus is turning around and and thinking, well, are you guys ready to make the choice? Are you going to take your place as a rightful and faithful son of the kingdom and the promises of blessedness, or are you going to choose the place of misery and torment in outer darkness? What's it going to be? Are you going to choose the narrow gate or the broad and the easy gate? Here again, we have the repeated announcement of eternal blessing for those who enter the narrow gate and follow Jesus and the destruction and utter ruin of those who do not follow Jesus because of their unbelief. And I hope you're not thinking, oh, Rick, this is a special Sunday of celebration. We're celebrating 10 years of a blessing as a congregation today. Do you have to hammer the outer darkness again? like they did the other couple of sermons. Folks, listen, the text is expressing the seriousness and the importance of being faithful to who Jesus is. I'm reminding you of Jesus' invitation to everyone, even Gentiles from all the corners of the earth, to come into the hospitality of our God, to choose to come into the inner circle of the faithful, to sit down and have a celebration dinner in eternity just like we're going to do here in a few minutes. Our celebration of the 10th anniversary is only a tiny peek into the kind of celebration that Jesus is promising for all the people who are with him, for all those who trust him and are faithful to do what he asks. And this is how serious faith is to Jesus. Unbelievers are not going to be there. There won't be a minute of celebration for the faithless in eternity. How futile are going to be their tears of anguish and how impotent the gnashing of their teeth for people who had the opportunity to believe in Jesus because of his teaching and his healing to find out that they are now outcasts from God's kingdom. 
So I'm hammering the outer darkness theme because these two things go hand in hand. You're either all in or you're all out. Don't count on trusting your heritage or your natural descent or your works or any of your privileges to count for anything instead of simply believing and trusting in the power and the authority of who Jesus is. And then to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And so in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is at the top of the mountain, calling the crowds to him, teaching the people how to think about the law, how to respond to the teaching of the law appropriately in light of who God is. And how to think about the person of God and the choices to make regarding the degree of your faithfulness to him. And then Jesus comes down the mountain and the people are following him and he immediately begins interacting with the people who are responding to him. He's touching them. He's feeling, he's healing their infirmities and their diseases. And he's challenging them, just like he did, to look at how genuine their faith is. He's checking to see the extent to which they understand that his teaching and his authority comes from the authority of God himself. He begins bringing the kingdom of God, the intimacy of God the fellowship of God right into the midst of the people. And the first three people that Matthew records Jesus interacting with are a leper and a Gentile and a woman. The three groups of people who are the most outcast in Israel. They're most separated from the intimacy of God, most separated from the intimate worship of God in the temple. And we see Jesus breaking down the barriers of separation by bringing fallen humanity into communion with the holy God, breaking down the walls that separate us from God, making the kingdom of God available to everyone who has faith. And it's never changed. It's the same now. Well, my friend Matt that has been coming to church off and on shared a video with me this morning, and it's about a savant who at the age of four had an epileptic attack that changed the function of his brain. And he was fascinated and amazed and totally into numbers. And they did an experiment with him because he thought thought repeatedly about numbers and he was focused on numbers. In fact, numbers amazed him And they sat him down and they said, okay, so you know that pi has an infinite number of letters, numbers that follow the 3.14. And he said, yes. And so they ran it on a computer just to see how long it would go. And it was essentially infinite. But this man sat down and listed in order 22,500 of those numbers that followed the decimal point not even figuring it out, just repeating, just saying what they were. 
And the people that were watching him were totally amazed at that. Wow, that's incredible. Well, you know, the scriptures speak often of how people respond in amazement to Jesus. And there are lots of things in our world to be amazed about, folks. But it's curious, though, that the Gospels report that Jesus was amazed only twice. And on both occasions, he was amazed concerning both the absence and the extent of someone's faith. Those are the things that amazed him. Faith and the lack of faith were the two things that amazed Jesus. The depth of it and the shallowness of it blew his mind. In the former case, Jesus was amazed at the unbelief of the townspeople from where he was who were most familiar with him. Those people in particular should have believed in him because they witnessed his teaching and his healing ministry firsthand. In fact, Mark chapter 6 says, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogues, and many, hearing him, were astonished. They were amazed. They had their minds blown. And they were saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? And then it says, so they were offended at him. It's like, what? <laughs> they were am their amazement caused them to be offended at Jesus. They were amazed at his teaching and healing, but the response wasn't increased faith. They were offended at him. And he was amazed because of their unbelief in light of the authority and his teaching ability. And in the passage from this morning, Jesus was amazed at the faith of a centurion, a Gentile, someone wholly disconnected from the Jewish religion and who Jesus was. Yet he clearly understood the power and the authority in Jesus, and he willfully submitted to it. I like this comment by Blaise Pascal. He said, In faith there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't want to believe. Folks, how can we witness the healings of Jesus and hear his teaching and not believe that everything he did demonstrated the authority and the power and his connection to God the Father? Don't let yourselves become indifferent to the marvels of the grace that allows someone to see the depth of their own corruption in the presence of Jesus and believe in the redemption and the spiritual healing that God has revealed in the person of Jesus. Jesus was amazed at faith because you can't see and you can't trust and you can't engage the reality of God without faith. Jesus reminded us throughout the Sermon on the Mount that the unseen God is the one great and absolute reality, and so why don't you believe him? 
If we can penetrate the core of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, it's this. To trust God is to enter the world of fact and truth, not the world of fiction or make-believe. And to trust God is to enter the world of eternal blessing. Faith enables us to see and to live in God's reality. Let's pray. Father, I hope every heart and mind and spirit here is engaged to consider the words that Matthew recorded this morning. As we continue to sing and to share in communion together and then afterwards to enjoy the celebration of 10 years being together, Father, we just pray that that time and the time now that follows will be a great blessing to us. And Father, help us to become more and more engaged and more faithful and never offended because of who you are. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.